The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I am Jerry Prokopovich. Four score and seven years ago is perhaps the best-known opening to any speech in American history, possibly all of human history. What more can there possibly be to learn about this famous oration? Well, for one thing, what was the real Gettysburg Address? We've got five versions in Lincoln's hand, and they're all different. Which one was real? What does real mean? Why does it matter? We'll ask these questions and more of our guest, Martin P. Johnson, author of Writing the Gettysburg Address, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to the show. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from, as usual, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina but not speaking for the university or anybody else on campus uh, or the UNC system or anyone anywhere, just myself, and I know my guest will do the same for himself tonight. Well, as we get started, I will this evening like to uh, give what the young people call a shout-out, I believe, 
or was that 10 years old already, uh, to Civil War Talk Radio's number one listener. That's my mother. She's home in Gross Point, Michigan, uh, recovering from a broken wrist sustained in a recent fall. Mom, I hope you're feeling better and enjoying the show. I hope the computer's working tonight and the sound is clear. And I know that when the show is over, I will get the weekly critique that makes Civil War Talk Radio better week after week as I uh, get the early reviews uh, from Mom back home. So take care of the rest, Mom. Last night, uh, Civil War Talk Radio went on the road to Brunswick Civil War Roundtable in Southport, North Carolina, and it was an incredible scene. The Brunswick Civil War Roundtable has over 700 members, and I know many of you are members of your local Civil War Roundtable, and I've spoken to a fair number of them around the country, and if if there's uh, 100 members, the groups tend to think they're doing pretty well. If there's 200, that's really something. They've got 700. It's just astonishing, and they're only a few years old, I should add. Uh, They have a huge number. They have a probably 30% female membership, which is more than many roundtables have. It was really uh, curious. Uh, I had a delightful dinner with the hosts, and we talked about why they've been so successful, and uh, a lot of theories came up, but it was really a a great uh, pleasure to speak to such a large and enthusiastic group. The week before, they had had... uh, they don't meet all 700 at one time. Uh, they don't have a room big enough for that. Uh, but the week before, they'd gotten a especially large room and filled it with 350 people to hear uh, Ed. And I said, oh, that's great. Ed can do that. And it occurred to me I had a tough act to follow because there's only one speaker in the Civil War circuit who is known by his first name, like Madonna or Cher. Uh, that, of course, is Ed Bars, And he uh, filled the room, and I had to follow him last night. But in the smaller room, we filled that, and there were 250 people, not necessarily to hear me, but just to be part of this really outstanding uh, roundtable. So I was impressed. It was also a pleasant vacation uh, to go speak and talk about history as back here uh, at the ranch at East Carolina University, the Department of History is about to undergo its seven-year program review. Uh, External reviewers from other universities will come and visit us. Uh, and people within the university will look at us, and we have prepared a lengthy uh, self-study report, which I've been writing for the last week or so, and I think the earliest I've gotten home any of these evenings, including the weekend, was about 10 o'clock, sometimes a lot later. So it's it's like being a lawyer again when you had a big case, Uh, but there you actually got paid a lot. On the other hand, here I get to do something fun, which is talk history, so it's, it's, it's a good trade-off. Uh, but it has been quite an experience to look at one's own institution in such detail and see what we do right and what we do wrong. And uh, as much as many people complain about the bureaucracy of this sort of thing, it, it's not that bad a thing to do once in a while. Uh, we'll fill you in uh, a month from now when we, we find out how the self-study goes or how the external uh, review goes, and, and hopefully they find some good things here. That'll be happening right around the time of spring break. Before then, we've got some excellent programs here on Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, Jared Peatman will be here to talk about 
The same topic as tonight, oddly enough, the Gettysburg Address. It's inexhaustible. We'll find out why in a few minutes. Following that, Richard Carradine will be here, author of Lincoln, A Life of Purpose and Power, one of the uh, great books about Abraham Lincoln in the 21st century. Then we'll have J. Michael Cobb, Mike Cobb, talking about the battle at Big Bethel. And on March 5th, Richard Slotkin telling us about the long road to Antietam. And then it'll be spring break. We can all relax, uh, put little umbrellas in our drinks, and wait for the second half of the spring season of Civil War Talk Radio. You can find out what's going on from the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps everything up to date and tells you who's going to be on. You can go to the Civil War Talk Radio Facebook page as well. Find the link there. At the website, you can find links to the books that are discussed on the show. Click on those and buy your books through Amazon, uh, through the show webpage, and the website gets a few pennies. There's also a donation button. And uh, every week I explain how it's not tax deductible. It's just for my personal use, and I can do whatever I want. I found out what I'm going to be doing with it, which is uh, daughter number two is about to graduate from high school. Daughter number one is about to graduate from Bowdoin College this spring, home of, uh, of course, Joshua Chamberlain, uh, and and uh, set out on uh, uh, her career path. But uh, my younger daughter is about to start college. The question is where. Uh, she's been accepted at some uh, places that I'm impressed by. Uh, UNC Chapel Hill is one, the sentimental favorite, my old uh my old uh, maize and blue school, the University of Michigan, is another. Do not bother applying to Harvard University because I've got a degree from Harvard, and that's all we need to know. I have to say that every week. Uh, and she's been accepted at Miami of Ohio, which uh, is something I'll ask our guest about in a few uh, in a few moments. So, if you have thoughts on where my daughter should go to college, uh, you can keep them to yourself, but send me money because all these places are expensive like crazy. And so just go to the uh, PayPal donation button and put in three or four figures, hit send, and uh, Maria and I will, will thank you. Well, I don't know how that'll work out, but we'll see. Meanwhile, back to Civil War history, our guest tonight is Martin P. Johnson, uh, who has written a book called The Gettysburg Address, writing the Gettysburg Address and looking at one page of it uh, from the University Press of Kansas. Martin, are you there? I am. Glad to be here. Oh, welcome. Uh, good Good to talk to you. Uh, you and I have been known each other through the computer screen for, it must be a decade by now. Uh, you were at Southern Illinois Press at one time? Northern Illinois, yeah. Northern Illinois. Oh, I was uh, one of those Illinois presses. I'm sorry. Talking uh, at different uh, conventions and <laughs> uh, conferences and things over the years. It's good to talk to you again. Yes. Um, well, uh, d- d- tell us how you got from uh, from Northern Illinois Press to to where you are now. How did that come about? Well, there was a job down here at the Miami of Ohio, and um, we moved to this region because my uh, dear spouse uh, was uh, hired on as assistant professor of history here at the University of uh, Miami University, and um, then the job opened up that I'm currently in. So I was very fortunate that uh, it worked out for us like that to get two, two tenure-line jobs in the same region. I heard you speaking about some departmental issues 
earlier. So uh, it's uh, as you know, it's it's sometimes rare for spouses to be able to be in the same community. Oh, it, it's extremely rare. We've got uh, that situation here in East Carolina. We've got uh, a husband of one of our professors teaches at uh, NC Wesleyan and Rocky Mount. That's a that's that's an hour, forty five minutes to an hour away. Uh, that's an, and and we consider that not too bad. But we've got others who are separated by half a continent, and they uh, they either commute or, or do something to deal with it. So so I'm, I'm very happy to hear that you work that out. I mean, that's an issue throughout academia. Um, uh, I always advise graduate students, don't fall for any of your classmates uh, because you want to marry someone in a different line of work. Uh, They don't listen, but... uh, Well, the Gettysburg Address had something to do with it, too, because uh, uh, during that time, I was publishing and researching on the Gettysburg Address, and so this this actually is what got my foot in the door in the job. So uh, it was very helpful in that regard, too. Well, let me ask you about this book. I'm looking at a set of page proofs that uh, the University of Kansas was kind enough to send me. No, actually, that's not where I got them. Um, uh, no, these are from... Uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm, now I'm suddenly pausing, thinking, how much am I supposed to say about things like tenure reviews? Uh, at some universities, like East Carolina, you get a note when you have an external tenure reviewer that says uh, this person will, uh, the, the person being reviewed will see everything you write and everything you do. Do you have that at Miami of Ohio? Yeah. Yes, uh, we do. And I have not looked at those reviews yet. So uh, everyone's safe <laughs> currently. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was just, uh, well, anyway, it's, that's how I got hold of this, this, these page proofs is uh, as part of the tenure review package. So uh, uh, I, I hope everything's going well on that front for you. It uh, is. The, uh, the, the university committee has recently approved, and now it's going up uh, to the level above that. So I'm very happy about that. Uh, mazel tov. Congratulations. That, that's, that's great. Well, then I can relax, take a deep breath, say, okay, I was one of your external reviewers. And, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's why I, I got this. Uh, this is part of your package, the, the proofs for the book. So what is the status of the book is my question. Uh, is, it, is it out yet? It's is it out, coming out soon? It's been out since uh, um, late October, and okay. uh, sales have been very good. I just got a, a nice uh, little royalty check the other day. Excellent. So, uh, yes, it's, it's, been, it's been well received so far. Okay. Well, I've got to call the publisher and tell them to send me a real copy then, because uh, uh, I've got this heavily marked up uh, set of, of proofs, and it, it's it was it was fun to read it. It is fun to read. Um, you've had, of course, uh, at Northern Illinois Press, you saw everything before it went out. But it's there's a certain inside satisfaction in seeing work before it gets out to the public and having right. a hand in shaping it. You can catch those uh, little errors or make little suggestions. It, uh, it's, an, it's an it's an interesting process. So uh, let's talk about the, this book and how it it came about. What. Um, well, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a big question to think about. We'll take a short break, uh, and you can think about how, how to address it. Uh, the big question with any Lincoln book, and I'm sure you've been asked it, and anyone who writes about Lincoln has asked it, is uh, there's 16,000 books out there. Everybody has written a book about Abraham Lincoln, and... Why do we need another one? The Gettysburg Address has, uh, you've got Gabor Boritz's uh, fairly recent book on the Gettysburg Gospel. Uh, 
uh, people before have written about it, back to Lewis Warren. Uh, so what, how, how does one get up the nerve to tackle a subject that is so frequently and deeply written about? And since I see the clock winding down, what we'll do is take a, a short break right now, come back and start with that question. Perfect. What, what have you got to say that's new on the Gettysburg Address? And we'll find out from our guest, Martin P. Johnson. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm talking today with Martin Johnson, author of Writing the Gettysburg Address. And we left off our first segment with the question hanging in the air. Uh, what would inspire someone to tackle this subject when you've already got Gabor Borat's book and Gary Wills's book and all these other uh, books about the Gettysburg Address? What, what's new here? Well, part of the reason I wrote the book and researched the book was because of all those 16,000 tomes, and each book, each treatment of the Gettysburg Address, for example, uh, came up with a different answer about very 
uh, seemingly basic questions such as, what was the order or sequence of Lincoln's writing the speech? We have these five manuscripts in Lincoln's hand, uh, but uh, there's been no consensus about which one he wrote first, for example, which one he spoke from at the cemetery, the precise words uh, that he spoke at the cemetery, and, and then what was his intent, finally, when he wrote his, uh, revised the speech after the ceremony? What was his intent, his final intent? So without knowing the order or the sequence of those five documents, um, it seemed to me that we didn't really have the full story of the Gettysburg Address. And so I set out to try to, try to solve that problem, uh, the question of the five texts in Lincoln's hands. And, uh, but that then led to and really telling the whole story of how Lincoln came to write the Gettysburg Address. And it, and it became quite a much larger story than I originally thought it was uh, going into it. Let's well. Let's start with those the five versions. Um, what are what are what are they? What are the five versions? Are, are how different are they, and and how do we tell them apart? Well, this is a part of the the story that became uh, surprising to me. Was that yes? If you look at the five different versions, the actual literal meaning of the words, uh, the words are not that different from first to last. There's about a uh, 15% change from first to last um, in terms of the uh, additional words, and then maybe 20% different words. So, you know, it's, it's some words, but the, the meaning doesn't really change over time. He, he's refining and honing the central ideas. But when we look at the, for example, the first text that he wrote, and then um, in Washington before the ceremony, uh, what I call the Washington Draft, which he wrote before leaving to go to Gettysburg, and then we compare that to, say, what he said on the stand, we can see that his emphasis has changed, and he's adding and rethinking some things. Um, even when he spoke on the stand at Gettysburg, he was uh, extemporizing. Uh, Gary Wills, in, of course, the uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Lincoln at Gettysburg, suggests that Lincoln did not extemporize, but I agree that he did, and, and others too. And um, so when we, we, we put together the story of the five versions, the meaning of the particular words perhaps doesn't change so much as our understanding of Lincoln's journey to the Gettysburg Address. His experience of writing the speech helps us understand the speech more deeply, I think. Well, let's, for those who, who have not looked at it recently, um, what are the, let's name the five versions and give a little backstory on, on what we know of them as physical. I mean, when we say versions, yes. these are physical pieces of paper that yes. exist written in Abraham Lincoln's hand. Yep. Tell, tell us about the documents. And those are, the, those are the five documents that we have, but when you look into each of those documents, several of them, for example, have edits and changes within them. And so, for example, for the first of the five documents that we have, the so-called Nicolay copy, most people have uh, believed that this is the delivery text, and I, and I also agree with that. Um, but uh, only the first page of that Nicolay document was um, written in Washington, D.C. That's the first page on uh, Washington um, Executive Mansion letterhead. Um, that's all in ink, for example, on a piece of paper that's about the size of a standard notebook paper today. The second page of that document, the same Nicolay document, we call it the same document to the Nicolay document, the second page was actually written in Gettysburg on different paper, in pencil. It was written and finished the morning of the speech uh, in what I think is a kind of crash revision as Lincoln, experiencing Gettysburg, put his ideas together in a new way. And that's the first time 
that we have in Lincoln's writing the words, A New Birth of Freedom, for example. And that speech, the ink first page and the pencil second page, first part written in Washington, second part written in Gettysburg, that speech is the one that he carried to the stand and spoke from at Gettysburg. So just that first document, the so-called Nicolay document, has an entire history within it, which really is composed of several different versions. So each of these five versions in there has their own story, and it can become quite complicated, especially to speak about. So um, when I uh, give talks and things, I try to give the larger story, but the, the book is where I try to work out all the details and show people exactly how we know some of these things, at least I believe some of these things to be true. So, so, so we've got the first. So, so the Nicolay copy is is the first. Yes, and that's widely accepted. Yes, but the, be, the, well, the first page of that, the, the first page of that was written in Washington. The second page mm-hmm. was written in Gettysburg. So this this one document we call it a single document is actually has this bifurcated story, mm-hmm. and that's the story of Lincoln's writing. That's most of this book is in fact the uh, two hundred fifty pages are about writing that document really. Well, I just want to skip ahead again. I, what I'm trying to do is lay the groundwork for our listeners who may not be familiar sure. with the five documents. Um, what are the names of the other four? Well, the other four, um, uh, after the Nicolay comes the so-called Hay document. Now, you might notice these are named after the secretaries of Lincoln, the John Nicolay and John Hay. Uh, mm-hmm. The second document is the Hay document. That's the most problematic. That's the one that has caused most of the trouble. And, and almost everyone who's looked into the history of the speech, the Hay document is the one that people have thought, well, some have thought it's the, it was actually written in Washington before the speech. Some believed Lincoln spoke from the Hay document, that is, they believed that that was the delivery text. And others believe that Lincoln created it later, created it later as a kind of souvenir, a kind of memento for John Hay. And um, most people who have looked in the history of the, sto- of the speech recognize that solving the mystery of the Hay manuscript, really, is solving the mystery of the entire sequence of five versions, because the last three are fairly unproblematic. Uh, have Nicolay Hay, and then the, the third is the Everett. That was written after the speech. Everybody knows that was um, a revised version written afterwards in Washington. And then after that comes the Bancroft and the Bliss. Uh, but the Everett, Bancroft, and Bliss are essentially identical. And so Everett was written for... Uh, Edward Everett, the other speaker at Gettysburg, is that correct? Yes, that's right. He wanted to he wanted a copy of Lincoln's speech to sell at a sailors and soldiers um, charity fair, and so he asked for a copy in Lincoln's. He asked for the original manuscript, the manuscript, but Lincoln made a new version, and that's because when Lincoln spoke, he added and changed things, and so Lincoln recognized that the printed version that was out there of his, of his spoken words and the version that he held in his hand differed. And so he wanted to create a revised version for Everett that brought everything together finally, several months after the speech, revised it and put together his sort of um, final intent, his final vision of the speech. And Everett text. And that's the, that's the first text that has in Lincoln's handwriting the words, under God. Now, the, the Bancroft copy was also written for charitable purposes? Yes, the Bancroft... Um, to be sold as well, and then the um, the Bliss text was written to be published in a book of um, uh, autographed uh, facsimiles, um, writings in the hands of the authors, and um, very um, patriotic text. The uh, one of the handwritten versions of the Star Spangled Banner was published, and Lincoln's speech was the second in the volume. So 
it was becoming recognized immediately. That's in April of 64. It was recognized immediately as an important speech on the level of the Star-Spangled Banner. So those last three, since, since we know they come after the delivery, as you say, they're less controversial as, what order, as to what order they go in. But the, the, the argument all along has been over what, what piece of paper was Lincoln holding at Gettysburg. What did he actually write, read from or recite from, and what, what did he actually say? Uh, it would be simpler if one of those five copies exactly matched what the newspaper reporters there wrote down, but that's not the case. No, it's not. And what the newspapers reported, as I looked into that, Essentially, there is um, one Associated Press telegraphed version that goes out from Gettysburg on the evening of the 19th and then is published all around the country on the morning of November 20th. And that's essentially the, the most important text, the Associated Press version, um, as published in, uh, say, Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Every city had its own version that they published because telegraphy was inconsistent. It's just like genetic mutation. When a word changes, as, as the um, birds on the telephone line, weather, things like this, can alter the way texts are transmitted. And so you have different versions printed on the November 20th in Boston, New York, Chicago a day later, uh, Philadelphia. Um, but they all really were the same as, uh, Associated Press copy as it came out of Gettysburg. And I was able to reconstruct what I think was the original Associated Press version as it was originally telegraphed. But each one, e- even though the, the, the reporter is sending out the same words to all these different places, but they arrive differently, and then each one f- spreads them further and more errors propagate. That's right. So, so, so I found it fascinating how you were able to track down uh, one that shows up in a Western paper in the Midwest yes. uh, as, as where, where it had come through and where it had picked up these errors. You, you can see as it moves along, words changing, and then the next, the next town down the line will keep that change, but then add a new change. And so you can actually trace these variations down the telegraph lines. It really is fascinating. It, it, it was, and it suggests something about the uh, you know, reliance on sources by historians, yep. and yep. Uh, in this case, reliance on, on media sources, where it's not media bias, but simple technological transmission issues that cause things to, to become different. Well, that's, you asked about why write another book. Um, many of the books written about this and other issues in the Civil War, as you know, are based upon other books. And until you go back to the original sources, and that's uh, so much of the work I had to do, is getting back to the earliest version of every story, the earliest version of every piece of information, and then you can piece together how that information changes over time um, and you can get back to the original story, I think, much better by you know going to the sources. And then, and so many um, so many books have not done that, and and that's one of the challenges of, of writing any history, I think. Well, you mentioned when we talk about getting back to stories and their sources, uh, none of these versions apparently were written on the train on the way to Gettysburg. But that's the most commonly retold story about the uh, you know on the back of an envelope. I need to add uh, uh, right. while on the train. That's right. I was able to trace that story, I think, back to what I think is the origin of that story. And um, it really began um, in 1865 when a newspaper reporter uh, said uh, that um, this was just after the assassination, 
was telling stories about Lincoln, a newspaper said, well, on the way to Gettysburg, Lincoln said he hadn't done any preparation. And the reporter added, the speech must have been written in the small hours of the night after Lincoln arrived in Gettysburg. So it's not on the train. The first version of the story is not writing on the train. But then that is picked up and changed over time, and you can trace it in the sources. By 1882, you have people talking about how Lincoln wrote it on the train going to Gettysburg. So it was... um, it's an interesting way that repeating stories, it's like that game of telegra- telephone, you repeat the story over and over again and things change. So, and then it becomes famously uh, embodied in, in a short story that, uh, yes. that, that everybody uh, in the early 20th century reads and becomes familiar with. That's right. Your guest, Jared Preetman, will talk more about that. I'm sure he, um, we were on a panel recently together and he, he can... Uh, tell about that um, 1906 is when that story was uh, published and it was put in school books and things of that sort so but she was uh, basing her story on uh, it was a fiction she knew it was a fiction but she was also basing it on these other stories that 20 30 years before had already developed the train legend your mention of, of, of Jared Peatman's book makes me want to ask uh, I, I've forgotten who it was but when when the uh, John Marzalek's biography of Sherman came out, a whole series of Sherman books came out at the same time, um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm blanking on who all the other authors were, but like four Sherman biographies or five came out within mm-hmm. a year or two, and one of the authors in his introduction uh, to one of the last ones to appear said, watching this happen was like having a, a six-shooter emptied into his abdomen. Uh, one chamber at a time, as mm-hmm. the book he'd worked on for years was being upstaged, book after book. Uh, that can happen. Luckily, uh, um, my my work is on the writing of the speech, mm-hmm. and Jared was really interested in the sort of um, the long shadow, as he calls it. He'll mm-hmm. really talk about that. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I've I've got his book, uh, and I'll be reading it this week to talk uh, with him on the show next week. And I I haven't read it yet, but uh, I I will next week, listeners, uh, be assured. So uh, I'm glad to hear that that the two of you did not feel that sense of conflict uh, writing about the same thing. But I think it's endemic in the Civil War and Lincoln worlds because uh, these topics do come up again and again, and people do write on similar things. So we've established that the that there are this multitude of versions, uh, five different handwritten versions by Abraham Lincoln, different versions sent out by the reporter who was there, which turns into uh, multiplies uh, like, like a monster across the country into a whole series of different versions. Why does it matter which was the actual set of words that Lincoln spoke in November 1863? Well, uh, of course, anything having to do with speech of this importance for American identity is important in understanding the nature of what Lincoln was saying about about our American nation and also his understanding of the war at that moment. And so part of what Lincoln was doing at Gettysburg was, for example, intensely political. Um, people think of the Gettysburg Address as this uh, abstract statement of high ideals, but he was, of course, in the middle of a tremendous civil war, and uh, the presidential election campaign was, was just opening up. Everybody was talking about the upcoming presidential campaign. And um, he knew that the words that he spoke at Gettysburg, when we put them in the context of his administration, we see that he is, he's staking out positions. He's writing the Gettysburg Address at exactly the same time he wrote his 
reconstruction policy, the so-called 10% plan, and that's his reconstruction policy to the end of the war. And the two go together. In the, in the reconstruction policy, he talks about a new reckoning and a new review, which is like the new birth of freedom. So in Gettysburg, he's really putting together the big themes and ideas of this administration, but I can connect them, or I believe they are connected deeply to specific policies, equal pay for black soldiers, for example, uh, drafting enslaved, the enslaved in the border union states so that essentially uh, forced compulsory emancipation uh, in the, in the uh, border states was being instituted in October, November of 63. So the new birth of freedom is, is really a declaration that the, the nation is going to be a nation of equal rights uh, before the law for black and white. Uh, that's, that's what the larger uh, point is. And so we can see Lincoln putting together those ideas over the process of writing the speech, creating his Reconstruction policy, and writing the speech go together at the same time. So it it really does matter, not not in the sense of if he'd said a different word, we'd think differently about what he meant that day, but rather it's a, a window into what what this means to Lincoln or, or what context, the context in which Lincoln is writing it. Is, is that a fair? Yeah. I think that's absolutely fair. And when we have a better understanding of Lincoln's mind and his purposes in writing the speech, we can understand the Civil War and we can understand our nation better as well through that speech. Because as a nation, we've, we've reinterpreted and interpreted our experiences through this, uh, this Gettysburg Address for uh, generations now. Every time there's a war, a crisis, a tragedy, uh, the Gettysburg Address is, is sort of the text that we go to to understand what it is that we are about. And understanding how that text gets created, I think, gives us a deeper understanding of, of that uh, process. Now, to, to do that, to get that kind of understanding, you have to have some material to work with. And if if the five versions had all been the same, if he just literally copied them uh, exactly word for word, we wouldn't have much uh, to go on in that sense. That's right. And you, you said at, at the outset of our discussion that there's only maybe 15%, uh, 20% difference, if, if that all told between all the versions. Uh, so what what is some, what, what's an example of a significant change? Well, the most significant for many people are the, is the words under God. Um, he did those words under God, for example, are not in the Washington draft that he wrote before going to Gettysburg. Um, the morning of the speech, I can talk more about this in a moment, he engages in what I called a so-called crash revision of the speech, um, and he uh, changed it and, and added new words. Words under God are not in that either. It's on the stand at Gettysburg, under the influence of that moment, under the influence of the, the impressive prayer that preceded the ceremony of Edward Everett's speech, during which Lincoln cried several times. It's, it was a powerful moment for Lincoln, and he imbued the text with his own passion and his own commitment. And speaking the words under God extemporaneously in the inspiration of the moment sealed for many people who were there that moment of Lincoln at Gettysburg. So he didn't just create words, he also created an image. That image of Lincoln and Gettysburg was a real image. It's an authentic legend. Uh, it started because of his powerful delivery and people's response to it, and it grew over the decades. And you can see it immediately developing in the, uh, in the sources. So the way he wrote it, the way he spoke it, the way he felt it, 
created the Gettysburg Address that we know. Well, that's a good place to take a short break, which we'll do now. We'll come back and talk more about the Gettysburg Address with Martin Johnson, author of Writing the Gettysburg Address. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Martin Johnson about Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Professor Johnson's new book, Writing the Gettysburg Address. We've been talking about the phenomenon of the five different handwritten copies that Abraham Lincoln prepared of that speech, some before, some after, uh, the controversy over when some of them were prepared and which one he actually spoke from. And we ended our last segment talking about uh, why it matters, uh, why why it, it makes any difference to know which was the speaking copy or what Lincoln actually said as opposed to what got published afterwards. Uh, and, and Martin, you argue in your book and, and explain to us just now that by by following the the composition process, by seeing how Lincoln adds things, how he is moved by the experience of the Gettysburg battlefield and the words of Edward Everett and the whole uh, importance of the the time and place to to add a phrase like "under God" uh, uh, to the speech extemporaneously gives those words an additional weight that they would not have if they were added, say, as a, a 
calculated political gesture to uh, the northern clergy or, or, or some other reason. Sure, and, and, and Lincoln did, did feel it very powerfully. Of course, Mary Lincoln uh, in 1866 uh, recalled that Lincoln felt uh, religious more than ever about the time of, of going to Gettysburg, she said. So Lincoln was, uh, and we know that, of course, his son was ill when he went to Gettysburg, and, and Lincoln was, um, as we many people suggested, is, was developing and changing and uh, altering his vision of some of these matters as he moved through the presidency, his ideas about religion. So this is part of his larger evolution uh, and views about religion and God and providence, which, of course, finds uh, perhaps highest expression in the uh, second inaugural. But uh, we can see that at work at Gettysburg. It's, it's part of that. And, and why it matters is uh, very clearly one, one way it matters is because the words under God are today in the Pledge of Allegiance, in large part because uh, in 1954 it was argued that uh, we needed to differentiate ourselves from the communist menace and uh, adding the words under God to the, the existing Pledge of Allegiance at that time was in part motivated because Lincoln had said them at Gettysburg, and it, it helped to seal that part of what uh, Lincoln had said and what, what in 1954 seemed to be an appropriate way to add that to the, um, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. So millions of school children in the United States uh, repeat those words because Lincoln felt the power of that moment at Gettysburg. At one time, millions of school children recited the entire Gettysburg Address every morning in elementary school. Uh, I, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not quite that old. Where we we were doing the Pledge of Allegiance when I was uh, young, but I'm, I'm guessing some of our listeners may recall, uh, especially if they grew up in in Illinois or uh, the surrounding states, that that was not an uncommon practice. And and. Which version did they did they uh, recite? <laughs> because of course, uh, President Obama was recently criticized for uh, giving a commemorative reading of the first uh, draft, the Nicolay draft. Uh, he was asked to do so by filmmaker Ken Burns as part of commemorative reading project. And of course, the first draft uh, does not include the words "under God." And he was President Obama was criticized for not having those words in in his the version he spoke of the Gettysburg Address. But well, it's, it's Lincoln's first version is is what he was reading from. So. What is the Gettysburg Address? That's part of the, you raised that issue at the beginning of the hour. Uh, what is this uh, text that we call the Gettysburg Address? What are the words of it? And, and fi- as I say, fixing, the, fixing the, na- the state of the text of the five versions, and then our understanding of the speech over time is, is part of this larger project. Now, there have been some people over the years who thought, because none of the five versions match the reported uh, newspaper reported words that were spoken, that there must have existed a sixth handwritten copy that did match what was said, that Lincoln actually spoke from. There, there's, yeah. that there's a missing reading text. I think, uh, I think it was Gary Wills who mainly uh, suggested this, because he, he started out by saying Lincoln did not like to extemporize while speaking, and because the spoken words as reported were different from any written text that we have, there must have been a written text that exactly matched the spoken words that he was reported to have said. And so this hypothetical uh, copy has been, since uh, Gary Wills' book in 1992, uh, discussed. Um, Doug Wilson today, or or at least Doug Wilson in his um, very important uh, book, uh, uh, um, Lincoln Sword, um, one of the best books on Lincoln as a writer, I think, ever written, uh, he also has argued for um, what could be called a hypothetical or no longer existing delivery text. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say that Doug Wilson, in a, a recent video that I saw, he did a presentation that he uh, agrees that the, the Hay manuscript was 
after the fact. Uh, so I think um, I think we can say that the Hay manuscript problem has been solved. Uh, at least I hope. I hope that's uh, the one of the main contributions of of the work. In other words, that the Hay manuscript was not the reading text or, or was not composed ahead of time. Well, I, I'm a hundred percent certain of that, and, and to hear mm-hmm. uh, people of the stature of uh, Doug Wilson and, and others uh, mm-hmm. agree that it sounds like that could be the case. Uh, that's, I think that's we're, we're, we might be arriving at a position where we can say some of the key the, the key issues of getting stress had finally been solved after 150 years. At least that would be my hope. Did you ever? Uh, talk with Lloyd Ostendorf about his sixth copy of the Gettysburg Address? No, but I did, did research that, and um, it is uh, quite clearly a forgery, and um, the, uh, there are reasons for that I can, we can talk about, but uh, it has really dropped out of view since the mid-1990s, and, and um, the person who um, I uh, believe uh, claims to have it, I, I have no reason to believe that they don't have it, but that person, uh, I think... Uh, is not you know interested in putting it forward as an actual copy, but uh, so it, it it it's an absolute forgery in my in my opinion. It uh, uh, he brought it to the the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when when I was working there in the nineties, oh, and I've, I've I've seen it. Um, oh wow! And he had done a great deal of work on it. Uh, he'd done all kinds of well, testing. On, on the, you know, on the back of it, it says uh, something like. Uh, in supposedly Lincoln's handwriting, for Honorable Judge Wills, the Lincoln's host, Gettysburg, mm-hmm. David Wills. Well, David Wills was not a judge at the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he wasn't called a judge. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was it, 1874 that, that uh, David Wills became a, a judge. So Lincoln did not come back from the dead to no, write that. You know? to, so, to give him that title or, or to yeah, anticipate. It, and there are many other that. reasons why it's a forgery, but uh, at least in my opinion. Well, it, 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 and Lloyd was... Uh, was probably the foremost collector of Lincoln photographs and, and images yeah. of his time. And, and people still use the O number series sometimes to designate Lincoln photographs. But he was in his late years in the 90s when he yes, became he convinced that, that he had found this. Yes. yes it, 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 to me, it seemed like a case of wish fulfillment that uh, if, if you spend your life looking for the great Lincoln document... And one day someone brings this to you, or you find it, or you simply convince yourself you found it. Uh, it, it was it was sad in a way uh, be, because we we didn't buy it from him, or offer to buy it, or offer to endorse it, or anything like that at the museum. We were not persuaded at all that it was real. If uh, there were a sixth copy, if it was absolutely real, it would be worth tens upon tens of millions of dollars. Um, literally, mm-hmm. but, but it, uh, that one's not it. That's not it. No, I, I, I'm with you there. I, I don't think anyone thinks that it is uh, today. So, uh, let me shift gears quickly and ask you a, a personal scholarly question. Uh, your original historical career involved writing about 19th century France, and then you switched to the Lincoln world. Why, why the transition? Well, part of that was I did not get a tenure-track job in um, European history. And so I was working as an editor, as you, as you know, at Northern Illinois University Press, and I was developing a Civil War list, and I was reading a lot of Civil War stuff and Lincoln stuff, and the um, Gettysburg manuscript controversies came to my attention at that time, and I just began to look into it. But, you know, my uh, preparation, my, you know, I'm, I'm a trained academic scholar, you know, that kind of thing, but that, that training was very helpful for 
developing notions of, say, historical memory and um, proper use of sources. So it was, to me, an illustration of how the, the basic things that we do as historians, all good historians do the same basic things, mm-hmm. and you can apply it to one field or another. And uh, particularly the Civil War field, and Lincoln uh, more especially, is that field has often been open to uh, you know, amateurs or people who are coming to it new, uh, lawyers. and People who are interested in the topic ha- are able to publish in the field. They do great work. Or they write books. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I'm, I'm one of them. I, I was, again, I was not trained in U.S. history, but uh, from love of the topic and from, uh, from looking into these issues, uh, it, it became a, a project that uh, absorbed uh, the last 12 years. Well, it's an interesting point about what uh, what historians are trained to do and what what value it has. It's it's in my frontal lobe right now as I'm doing the self study report for our our department and trying to persuade uh, people that just because you're not trained to become a historian on day one, uh, most most people with history degrees don't become historians. They become very good lawyers or engineers or uh, business executives or any number of things mm-hmm. because of the training but uh, but it's not a vocational track uh, it that, doesn't teach you right. one particular job that's right it, uh, it, just, it just teaches you to how to understand you know, how the world operates or how the world has operated and that uh, that's an important uh, insight I think that is the goal. Yes. So, in, in in looking back then at the, these documents, um, do you th- you mentioned Doug Wilson is said some some favorable things about your conclusions? Uh, yes, some of them. Well, as as I was reading this book, I was put in mind of um, uh, the the book about the diary of a public man. The uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Croft's book on the uh, uh, another historical mystery from from the Lincoln era. Who wrote that diary? Uh, just as there's this mystery of who wrote uh, these Gettysburg or, or what order were these drafts written in? Yeah. And he he solved his mystery, but then made it into a more important story. And uh, it seems to me that's what you've done here is is give us a convincing order for the drafts. Which is a sort of a parlor game in itself, but you've made it mean something more by by showing how this gives us insight into Lincoln's thinking. And yes, and his experience of the day at Gettysburg, and then thinking about it afterwards, that created the final text. So, th- what we think of as the Gettysburg Address was something that Lincoln created very carefully over these episodes of of writing, including revising in Gettysburg after visiting the battlefield, for example. So, he. He was experiencing those feelings that we all have also experienced in, in reading his words, and that has, that's what gave it such power and created what I've, again, called the, the authentic legend, uh, the real moment that Lincoln did stand on that speaker's platform and create an enduring monument of meaning uh, because of the experience that brought him there to speak those words. Wow. Well, it, it is... Uh, a very interesting book, uh, listeners. You'll want to get a copy of "Writing the Gettysburg Address" by Martin Johnson. Um, Martin, in 15 seconds, uh, why should my daughter go to Miami of Ohio? Because it's a great school and it's a beautiful campus. And uh, if we ever get out of this polar vortex, the weather is wonderful too. <laughs> uh, she will just love it. Well, that, and the department's a wonderful department. Uh, good all the around. Department. Well, I imagine she's going to be a historian, right? Uh, I think it's 
Maybe the last choice okay. <laughs> after growing up listening like to my, my stories. Yeah. Yeah. You know how that goes. Yep. Uh, but, but thank you so much for telling us about the book and uh, for, for joining us on the show tonight. And best of luck with it going forward. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.